My name is Joshua Edward Wright. I was imprisoned in Portland, Oregon, United States for 50 months. And during that time, I realized that not a lot of people know what we go through. So what I will be offering is personal narrative in the hope that the listener will be able to realize the validity of the statement that no human being belongs in a cage. Welcome. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the podcast, The Exiled Voice. Today, I have with me Daryl. Daryl, you want to introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Daryl. Thank you so much for being on the show. I'd love for you to go into the circumstances of how you found yourself imprisoned in the first place, how, how the police treated you, the circumstances of the arrest, you know, anything you want to share, we'd love to hear it. So I guess it's important to to say that I might be a little different than some of your guests in that I did two consecutive years in county jail, which is pretty rare. You have to have made somebody pretty mad to get two consecutive one-year sentences, <laughs> especially because they usually, if you get less than one year, one year or less on multiple charges, they run them concurrently. So even if you get two one-year sentences, they do them side by side, not back to back. And so I didn't have the fortune or misfortune, depending on who you are, of going to prison. I had to do all of my time in a, in a county jail. So how did I get there? Well, we could go a long way back and talk about family dysfunction and things like that. But let's just say that I was brought up in a pretty dysfunctional family and had, had been in and out of jail since I was an early teenager foster homes and and group homes and things like that. And then lots of short stints in jail. And finally, a district attorney had had enough of me <laughs> uh, in, in, a, in a small county. So the best she could do was get a year of incarceration on a probation violation. But we all know that government officials talk to each other. So what she could do is talk to some officials in a different county who had charges pending on me. And usually once you're sentenced in one county, they'll immediately ship you to another county to face the other charges. And then those charges will run concurrent. And instead of doing that, they just held those charges for a year. About a week before I was, I think, you know, they don't actually tell you when they bring charges against you. It takes a while for you to get notified. But I think about a week before my sentence was up, I was notified that I was going to a different county for new charges. And these were all charges based on events that had happened before my one year, first one year sentence. So I was shipped to Multnomah County and, and did another year. I think, I, I think without getting too much into detail, I think it's good enough to say that it was drugs and violence. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing. And yeah, I, I do remember hearing about people when I was in county that had been there for months and, you know, haven't been charged yet, haven't gone to trial. Um, I was on a row with a lot of murderers, oddly enough, for my first time being arrested. And a guy that was looking at like 12 years, a guy that was already in a cell for two years and awaiting trial for murder, you know, looking at like life and they just, they, they were stuck there. They didn't, you know, didn't yeah. let them out. Didn't, you know, their lawyers were preparing their defense. The district attorney was, you know, finding evidence to prosecute and all this other stuff. And they're just stuck there. It's part of the game they play is they'll charge you with, if they want to get you on a specific charge, they'll charge you on like 20 different things. And, and that intimidates the already overworked 
district attorneys because nobody can afford a real attorney. So then you have these already overworked um, district attorneys who, because they actually have to try you within 30 days of you being incarcerated or charged. So they get you to your, you know, your panicked attorney gets you to sign a um, speedy trial waiver. And once you do that, you're at their mercy. They don't have to schedule anything at any time. You just sit there and wait. And the attorney can push, but why would he? They don't, they're not really on your side. I actually saw some paperwork once about that it was accidentally slipped into a, a cellmate's file, but about what his attorney was getting paid. And, and he was making like $700 for this guy's class A felony case. <laughs> That's how well-funded district attorneys, or I mean, uh, public defenders are. They don't want to do any work. They just want to make deals. Agreed. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's hard, especially if you don't, like, if you don't have money and you're not, you know, established, you don't have tons of disposable income or like a retaining lawyer, you can just hire whenever like some legal issue arises. It's mm-hmm. basically impossible to get out of a charge. If they're holding you, it really is because even if you do have resources, your re- your resources are depleting every day that you're in there because you're not regenerating. So you're losing even if even if you're well set up before you go in, you're still losing every day, and it doesn't take long to lose an entire life if you're not working and and bolstering your your life. You know. Absolutely. Going on from that a little bit, I'd love to know. You know, because because county is designed to not be pleasant, I think um, it's I know it's, you know, commissary prices are a little bit more than prison. There's not really any programs. There's not really any anything you can do to occupy your time that you don't have like a weight pile. Usually, you know, you could just go in and work out every day. at. Um, so I'd love to know, you know, once you got to jail and we're just stuck there for that extended period of time, like what you did. To kind of just keep yourself safe, keep yourself sane, you know, how did you figure out how to do time, you know, anything along yeah. those lines I'd love to hear. So when I was in Columbia County, it's a little bitty jail, a little bitty in, in comparison to say the jails in Multnomah County. I think there are two or three in Multnomah County. I know at one point there were four, but I think they're down to two now. But um, in comparison, it's a tiny little jail. They have no yard to speak of. It's a concrete room with no roof. And they don't give you, they have a basketball hoop, but they don't give you a basketball. <laughs> they have a, a library, but it it's at the librarian's discretion what they put on the cart and bring to the dorm. And unless you're on that guy's good side, you're probably not going to get much in the way of interesting reading. So what do you do? I mean, I think first off, the you live on hope. Because the first, generally the first half of your time is waiting for your sentence to be figured out, whatever you're going to have to plead guilty to, because you're going to have to plead guilty to something. (laughs) And so they just kind of, they just kind of want you tortured. It's as intentional as they can make it without actually being torture. Columbia County, I think is a little kinder place, but it's much more boring. I think they, their approach there is a little better. But for me, I think, um, so until you're in a lot of jails, until you're sentenced, you can't get even get a job. So for my first four or five months, it was, it was just a lot of reading and a lot of spades. If I never see a game of spades again, I'll be pretty happy. And I was out of jail 16 years ago, still am super adverse to spades. <laughs> Reading, reading, um, writing letters, and hoping, 
um, because unless you want to comb through the law library, which they will let you do um, and try and be your own lawyer. And some people do that. Uh, some people have the patience and the education for that, or, or at least the ability to educate themselves to do that. I don't. I read well, but I don't retain well, so it wouldn't have done me any good. And beside that, my situation was was such that there wasn't really any defense for what I was in there for. I was really just waiting and hoping somebody was going to give me a break. You make friends. You see a lot of people come and go. I, I did. You, you learn some things. For instance, people who you think are your friends, they're not going to be on the outside or, or, or very likely aren't going to be on the outside. And if they are, they might not be as productive as you want them to be in your life. Everybody's got their own path, and it always seems to be different than what it, what you think it's going to be when you when you know them in jail. That's that's about it. You just I I just spent a ton of time reading. I actually found I used to keep a list of the books I read, how many pages they were for some reason, and then I would rate them and put a commentary by them. And I found that list. They actually let it take let me take it from one jail to another, and I I think there were over. I should have got it out for the interview, but there were over 400 books that I read in two years. None of them, maybe four of them were books that I could have used to equip myself better in life um, because there are very few of those available in, in jail, which is kind of a shame. I'd love to start a foundation that puts um, good books that help people in, in the hands of people that need them and, and are in a place to read them. Because once you get out, you're in, you're in survival mode again. Actually, a lot of people are in survival mode when they're in jail. I was lucky that I wasn't. That's it. Um, reading for me. Yeah, definitely. I remember because mine was a 23-hour lockdown, but the hour that they let us out, it was, you know, as soon as you shower, as soon as you use the phone, as soon as you trade a book if you want to, like that is it. So if you do that all in 30 minutes time, you're only out 30 minutes a day. Yeah, you know, so you yeah. like to kind of try to extend, like, oh, I'm just looking for a book. I'm just yeah. like the stuff like that, just trying to stay out as long as possible. You know, like they wouldn't allow us to look out the windows, and there was like big windows that we could see out in the day room where you could make the phone calls and stuff. And so, at the very least, I would just like hold the phone up to my ear and I would just look out the window and pretend like I'm talking to someone <laughs> to extend that hour, you know, and stuff like that. But we were in a uh, concrete square. It was really tiny. It was, mm -hmm. I mean, and there was a roof, but it was like a steel grate. So you couldn't yeah. really see much. Yeah. Like it was ventilated, but, and it was cold. Oh, yeah. But you couldn't see like the sun or anything. Oh, yeah. And in the winter, they gave you these shitty boots and shitty coats that you never knew how clean they were. It was bad. And the food was like, so the, the thing that I did to stay sane is I would write, I would read you know, read a lot. Same as you. I read like a 900 page Stephen King book. I read like the Holy Bible in its entirety. I tried to find a Quran to read that, you know, just like anything that was long and big. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I tried to read it and then just write a bunch. I tried to work out, but they didn't give us enough food. Yeah. So I was like basically starving myself trying to work out, you know, so you had to kind of choose like, should I work out today or should I feel like I'm fed? Yeah, and so like <laughs> yeah. you know, it was ridiculous. It is ridiculous. Yeah. Was yours in solitary confinement, or were you in like a dorm setting? That's an interesting question. One with a pretty simple answer. Um, a good portion of 
my incarceration was in dorms, but I think the most significant, the, the part that, that changed me the most was two months in uh, solitary confinement. And I got in a, I was, it was after my first sentence and I was polishing floors and the, the work dorm was a little sort of um, frat house-ish. And there was a bit of a faction in there that thought they uh, sort of called the shots. I don't play by rules that I don't have to. <laughs> so I ended up getting in a bit of a scrap with a kid that it, it wasn't bad. I just blackened his eye really. It was a really bad black eye, <laughs> unintentionally bad. And then when I was out polishing the floors the next day, one of the cops said, hey, what happened to this kid? And I was like, you got to ask him. And as, as he was walking away, I'm not sure why it occurred to me, but I said, so what's going to happen to him? And the, the cop goes, well, if he doesn't tell us who, who did it, he's going to have to go to solitary. So I just sort of off the cuff thought, well, he got, he got what he had coming to him. And, and I don't think he d- didn't think he deserved to be in solitary, especially not for not ratting on somebody. Right? So right there... On the out on the floor crew, I just said, "Hey, it was me." And I'm so mellow that and and sort of not in anybody's face that the cop was just like, "Yeah, sure," and started to walk away again. And I was like, "Hey, this cop is actually the sheriff now in Columbia County. His name's Pixley." And so I was like, "Hey, Pixley, it really was me." And he goes, "Okay," and he walked away. And uh, the next day, they called me in for an interview, and I I basically told on myself and. They put me in solitary for a month. And in that month, I had, I had some pretty strong epiphanies about life and the way I was seeing things and doing things and some waking kind of hallucinations because of the, the deprivation can be, the sensory deprivation could be pretty alarming. And it was significant enough that when they came to get me after 30 days, I actually asked them if I could stay a while longer. They had never had anybody ask that. Or, or at least not very often, so they didn't know how to react. But um, they, they said that they could, they'd leave me in the small jail, so they only had a couple of solitary cells. So they left me in there for as long as they could until they needed the cell, which was another month. And I think I needed that to sort of do a lot of people would say soul searching, but really just being holding myself accountable to the to the way I had been addressing life uh, and the hurt I had caused in life, and then and then allowing myself to feel that. In, in the form of regret and remorse, and then sort of redirect myself in a way that redevote myself to finding another way to look at life. And when they, when they came to get me and took me back to the work dorm, I felt like a new person, or at least I had a new determination to, to be something different and, and, and a new recognition that what I was was not acceptable to me anymore. Yeah, I can, I can somewhat relate is just that aspect of like, I feel like people, they don't need solitary confinement necessarily. It's, it's a very archaic form of punishment that human beings are not designed to endure. But I will say that having that space to be completely by yourself, if, if that was somehow optional and you can like cub and go as you please, and just in this kind of empty space of yourself, I think if you have the fortitude to do so, you can make that beneficial and you can grow and you can, you know, figure out your past, your present, you know, what you want in the future in a very specific way. And so, you know, I'm, I'm sorry you, you endured that, but I'm also, I'm glad that you had the kind of strength inside of you to make that, you know, worth something to make it not be kind of in vain. You know, that's, that's really hard to do, but I'm glad you were able to do that. 
I'm, I appreciate that. Thank you. I'm hesitant to call it strength, more luck, <laughs> we'll say. I think I was just broken to the point where I was ready to be different. I was just so tired. Being a drug addict for a meth addict, actually, for 15 years will exhaust you, especially if you're a functioning one like I was, where you go to work every day and build houses and maintain a sort of reasonable life. I mean, I was often losing my house and things like that because I wasn't prioritizing my finances well, but I was leading somewhat of a functional drug, drug addicted life for a long time. So I was broken and exhausted to the point where I was just really ready to see things differently. And, it, and, and so that was an opportunity. And I appreciate you seeing it as strength, but I would never say it that way myself. Definitely understandable. Yeah. I feel like it's, now that I think about it, it is something inside of you, but it's not necessarily something related to power. It's something related to something deeper, something more specific. I often sort of touch on the theory that it could be just ego, like, because I really just said to myself, well, you're kind of a shitbag. And, and that's not who I wanted to be. And, it, and it, it's a thing that creeps up on you. Like becoming a shitbag creeps up on you. Nobody starts out that way. You know? we, just, we just kind of, through layers and layers of bad decisions and regret, I kind of get that way. And, and my ego recognized that I was somebody that I never wanted to be and then told me that I needed to be something different. So probably ego. For, in my case, I think it was probably ego. I'm inclined to agree. Yeah, I, mean, I, I kind of, this is unrelated, but I'd love to know if you had, you know, did you get letters? Did you get phone calls? Did you have visits? You know, anything like that? Um, yeah. You know, people that you kept in touch with on the outside and kind of how, how did that work? You know, how was that for you? The first sentence, my family was pretty fed up with me and I had essentially no friends. I got very little interaction with letters and visits. My oldest brother did come and visit me on occasion, which was, which was really nice. Um, my nephew had my dog, which was kind of the most important thing in the world to me. So my nephew would on occasion send some letters. I still have all those from, from that long ago. And then by the time the second sentence came around, my, I think my family had looked deep enough into what was happening to realize that I was sort of getting what could have been considered the short end of the stick. I had been telling them that this wasn't going down the normal path of, you know, getting charged with something and then being incarcerated, but they weren't, they didn't believe me. You know, why would they? But by the time I got another one year sentence back to back with the first one, they're like, oh, this, he might be telling the truth that he's pissed off the wrong people. We didn't necessarily make any reconciliations about my behavior then, although I did make some apologies, some, some long-deserved apologies. My mom sort of got back on my side and sent me letters and my grandmother. So I had more support in the second year than a lot more support in the second year than I did in the first. The first was a really lonely year, and, but probably one that I needed to be lonely in order to push me to that place where I, where I was ready to make some changes. Yeah, that makes sense. I I think I got two visits that were, you know, through bulletproof glass and through a phone. And then I got, I think, like three letters or something like that. But my mom always answered the phone. So that that helped me the hour that I was able to, to do that. You know, in prison, 
was different because I don't know, it was just farther away. It was, you know, my mom had to drive like an hour and a half just to see me, stuff like that. And it's, that's really hard to do, especially if you have a job. So I, I didn't, I think I saw my sister three times in four years and I saw my mom, you know, like every six months. It's but, lonely, isn't it? Yeah, it's rough. And then, yeah. you know, I had a, I had a girlfriend because I was going to college at the time and she stayed until I think like a year into my prison sentence. And then it was just like, I still got over three years to do 24 years old. You're going to college, you know, I'll be fine. You just, you take care of your needs that I'm not able to right now. You know, That's rough. That, yeah, that was, that was bad, but yeah. I think it helped me kind of get rid of that mentality at the time that was I think still rooted in a lot of monogamy in this country is just like possessiveness. If I'm unable to provide for your needs, like that's, you just have to deal with that. You know, it's, I mean, people all have needs, you know, it shouldn't be like like that type of control type of thing. But, you know, that was just something that I tried to work out in my mind is like, why did that bother me so much at the time? Mm -hmm. You know, and just what, what is my attachment? That's an autonomous human being as it's not mine, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so, well, it's obviously rooted in self-worth, right? I was fortunate enough to not have anybody that I had to let go like that, uh, like you did. And, and I, but I do have an extreme level of empathy for the fact that you did it. That's a hard thing to do. But really, it's the most compassionate thing to do, especially if she was willing to stick it out. I mean, nice job. That's, that's a big, it's a very human and compassionate thing to do. Yeah, it was... One of, I think, the hardest decisions I had to do, and I think it was like on a video visit, and we were both crying towards the end, and I was crying in the middle of prison, and that's not a good idea. But yeah, you can't back go back to your homies with a swollen face and red eyes, yeah. can you? Yeah, and I, I was like, man, I got in a fight, man. I don't know what you're talking. About. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was real. I'd love to know, you know, just just continuing for the audience, just. You know, once you were getting close to release and releasing itself, you know, what was that process for you? How did you, you know, find housing? How did you find jobs? Stuff like that. What what kind of triggers did you have after you were out? You know, I'd love yeah. to hear all of that if you want to share some of that. So, of course, you're, you're, as your time nears its end, you want to try to plan, or at least I wanted to try to plan as best I could what I was going to do. And, and you can't. With almost no contact with the outside world, it's not like you can apply for jobs and look for places to live. You're going to rely. You're going to have to rely on either the system or the people in your friend and family group, and that's just all there is to it. And if you're relying solely on the system, you're basically screwed. So my big focus was on emotional preparation, emotional and psychological preparation. Like, what do I need to to be successful? So. I had my grandmother sending me some books at Columbia or at Multnomah County. They could send you books directly from the publisher. And that was when Amazon was much smaller than it is now. And it was mostly a book publisher or a book reseller. So I was, I I read some really great books that, that helped me. I joined in on a, a rehab through Volunteers of America that started, it was an inside out rehab. So. I did about four months or three months inside, and then it helped it. You could continue on with it outside. It was a really good program. They, the, my PO ended up using it against me, which is kind of a long story, but 
my charges in Multnomah County were violence. So I wasn't actually sentenced to any rehabilitation, even though I was doing it. Uh, I was fortunate that my grandmother at the time was still alive and was able to give me a place to live when I, when I got out. I didn't have a job. How could you? But by that time, I had made enough amends and reparations with family that I had some support that I hadn't, didn't have to rely wholly on the system. I, th- I think in my situation, I, I'm trying not to speak in general terms because I saw other people go through things differently or process release differently. But for me, I, I was scared. I was really scared because in a, in a way that was different from before, because I was committed to being different and I didn't know how that was going to look. I had no clue how to live a normal, productive life without being in survival mode all the time. But I did know that I had to stop that. So it was pretty scary. I think the Volunteers of America program was helpful in sort of helping me recognize that I was addicted to drama along with drugs, (laughs) Um, addicted to chaos along with drugs, which are things that, that really... I today have to keep in mind that I have a propensity to lean towards chaos. And so I've created a world around me that's very quiet and very peaceful. And I don't allow any drama or chaos in my world. I go to it sometimes, as you're aware, but that's just sort of a entertainment value now. Yeah, yeah definitely. That, that makes sense. And we talked before this, and I'd love to, you know, for you to do kind of similar stuff with the audience, but, you know, triggers in particular, like I, you know, we mentioned going to the store and kind of getting overwhelmed, trying to get groceries and stuff like that. Were, were there other things that you want to kind of rehash for the audience or just like, just share about, you know, once you got out, things you didn't expect um, to be triggered by in terms of like, you know, PTSD from jail, stuff like that? One thing that people don't recognize is... Even in the most peaceful of jails, from the most peaceful and well-organized jails all the way up to the, to the horrible prisons, the one thing that they all share in common is that there are words that create fights. Now, words and actions that are, well, they're fighting words. And we're all, if we spend any amount of time in these facilities, we're programmed to react to these fighting words or fighting gestures. You don't have to necessarily always reply with violence, but you have to reply with the insinuation of violence at the very least. And then when you get out, you have to, that becomes first, that becomes a way of life and it becomes sort of a a part of who you are. And then when you get out, you have to shelf that. And it's really difficult because in the outside world, people don't think that. They think that they can flip you off, tell you to go fuck yourself, say anything they want to you, and they're safe. And they just don't realize that they're not. And that people like you and and myself and the people that are worse than you and myself in this world exist in a way that make them not safe. And they don't understand it. They don't understand that you can't just harass people in your car or say whatever you want in line at the grocery store. People don't realize how close they come to being physically harmed for the rest of their lives. But I don't think there's any way to, to educate them on that. Like, because we don't want to wear signs around that says, hey, I'm just fresh out of incarceration. Don't say sideways shit to me, right? We want to be as discreet as we can about that. So things like people inhibiting my free movement, 
gets to me because my free movement was basically dictated every minute of my day for two years. People intentionally violating my personal space when they're excited. Like I can have a heated debate with just about anybody, but if you get too close, that's one of those things that it requires a reply that we learn, you know? Traffic gets to me. Two-lane highways with some dickhead blocking the left lane really gets to me. That's inhibiting my free movement. I don't think I've ever known anybody that did any amount of time that didn't come out with some protector built into them. And I'm not sure where that comes from, but you and I discussed that we both have it to a degree that is, I think, detrimental to both of us. I haven't put enough thought into where it comes from, other than the fact that we know that we know what trauma is and we don't want other people to have to experience it, or that we've seen the little person picked on too much. What's left of our humanity that won't allow that anymore? We don't have to. I think for me, other than the triggers that are involved with my own personal sort of issues from childhood and things like that, those are the triggers that come from incarceration. Bullies. Oh, I can't stand bullies. Especially bullies in in, uh, uniform, because there's a lot of them in this world, and they're not good people. They're just... They're, they're the exact opposite of the people on the other side of the bars. They're the opposite side of the coin. They're still the same coin. Yeah, yeah no, that's really well put. Yeah, I have the same, very same response, especially with, with bullies and badges. Um, but just, yeah, like what you said about, you know, not being able to kind of watch someone get picked on or watch someone get bullied anymore. It's like, it's, I'm not physically able to do that. And so... You know, even in like movies and TV shows, if there's some type of thing like, you know, domestic uh, abuse or, you know, like even an animal getting harmed in, in the film or in the, in the movie, like that makes me viscerally angry. And I, and I know it's fake, but that's not it. You're watching it. It's like, oh, I remember this. And my body's like, it doesn't care if it's fake. It's, you know, yeah. you need to figure that stuff out and fix that. And so, you know, that, like you said, it's, it's detrimental when we just live our life, go about the world and, you know, encounter people that make us feel those things or come across stuff that does that. I haven't talked about this, I don't think, in public ever, but when I was in high school, uh, this was at the time that I had taken years of Taekwondo um, at this point, I think like six years, and there was a football player. I was walking to class in high school, and I saw him slap his girlfriend in front of me. Mm -hmm. Um, He was, me and him and the girl were the only people in the hallway. Um, I was late to class. They were just out, I guess, arguing or something. And something triggered. And I was like, oh, that's my mother. That's my father. And now Mm -hmm. I can do something about that. Yeah. And I threw him by his neck to the ground and I kept punching him until he wasn't moving. And I got expelled and he went to the hospital and... You know, I was never allowed back in that high school. Uh, this was in Tumwater, Washington. Looking back on it, I, I feel a lot of regret. I feel a lot of remorse because, you know, did him doing that warrant his like near death? Um, mm-hmm. He was in a coma for 12 hours. He might not have recovered. I could have like literally killed someone. Yeah. And me, to me at the time, you know, it was a lapse of judgment. I was just like, I lost it. You know, there wasn't any logical thought. But like we've mentioned before this, like it's not, it's not our job to do that. And 
the way that we have been trained can cause great harm. It, it you know, can. That doesn't warrant it. I am not by any means trying to, through this interview, trying to put myself in the, in the same category as people who have done serious prison time, like yourself. I'm just a guy that did some jail time, so, so I have some experience with incarceration. But between that and our own family dynamics, we're like dogs when we hear, when they see squirrel. I'm, I'm assuming you're the same way. Anytime you hear somebody yell, lots of people shrink get in their cars or whatever to go away. And we, our ears perk up when we look around to see if our presence is needed or if somebody needs defended or what's happening. Maybe it's going to be entertaining, but we don't shrink. We just squirrel. And I think that in some ways, if we can get a hold of that, that's a really good thing because we're not the people who run, but we have to get a hold of it in a way that also keeps us from being the people who attend every fight we're invited to, right? Because we don't have to do that. Absolutely. Yeah, I remember that was something that, you know, unbeknownst to this audience we talked about before then, and that big, my big takeaway from our conversation is like, you don't have to attend every fight, you know, you're invited to, and it's, it's very hard to do, but it's a very logical and rational and like, you know, expert advice. Yeah, yeah I, I remember that. I think what I have to ask myself is, somebody once told me that there's a lot of stupid people in the world and it's not my job to educate them all. And so I often will ask myself, well, sometimes a whooping might help somebody, but will it help this somebody? And, and the chances are usually no. So, and so then it's just hurting me. I guess, well, the last question is, you know, like, what are you doing with your life now? How are you kind of, you know, staying out of that, that mindset that can lead people back to imprisonment? And I mean, we're talking about some of that, but mainly, yeah. you know, what do you do for work? You have a house, you have an apartment, you know, things like yeah. that that you'd want to share with the audience. Yeah. Okay. So for me, being sober was a big part of it. I'm not going to get into what I do to stay sober because it's very, it's hand in hand with, with the important things about what I do to stay out of jail. The first thing I had to do was I had to make the decision to to be wholly different, change the way I th see things and do things. And that's a, a never-ending process. We, you and I talked about, I may be a lot further down the evolutionary, spiritual and emotionally evolutionary scale than I used to be. But until you know where a person is coming from, you don't get to judge where they are. You know what I mean? So I have a long way to go, but I'm, I'm always working on being a better human which is important. And it goes hand in hand with the key to me. Is I decided to build a life that I was terrified of losing. Because as we talked about earlier, just going to jail for a very short amount of time, you can lose everything. And if you build a life that you're terrified of losing, it's so multi-layered. And so it can create such depth to your existence. Like you manage your finances better. You manage your relationships better. You, you manage your peace better and your home better. And you manage everything in a way that is central to your emotional well-being. So I'm an architectural designer and project manager. I'm, I'm basically the general, general manager for a small remodel company. And I'm very fortunate to work for my best friend of 25 years. And when I want to change my job, we find a way. So when I first got out of jail, I was a carpenter and I could tell that my body was not going to take a lot more of it. He supported me in taking the steps that I needed to take to become our 
sole architectural designer. And for the last 10 years, I've been doing that also. And then as the company grew, we needed another project manager. I wasn't a full-time designer and I wasn't a full-time carpenter. So I became the other project manager. And then as the company grows, I take on more general manager responsibilities. And so I have a really diverse job, which for me is also the key. Um, boredom is tough for a person who's addicted to chaos to sit through. <laughs> I live in a little house outside of Portland, a little two-bedroom house built in the 40s that I'm remodeling. It sits on five acres, and it's the most peaceful place that I can imagine aside from 50 feet under the water scuba diving in the Caribbean. This place is, is where I retreat to to heal and recharge every day from the onslaught that is daily life, especially in the city. I'm not a city person. I, I just can't take the, the rudeness. People are terrible in the city. Terrible. <laughs> so I go to the city and do my work and then I retreat to my little hillbilly heaven and, and hide <laughs> and work every day to build a life that I'm terrified to, to lose. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's kind of the, the whole interview, but I, I'd love to know, you know, is there anything, anything final you want to leave, leave the audience with or anything that you want to touch on before we wrap up? I think that if, if you're a person who has been incarcerated, you know this. And if you're not a person that's been incarcerated, you should know that most of us never stop paying the price for transgressions. Society wants you all to believe that once our jail sentence and probation is over, we've paid our price, but that's not true. I'm 16 years out, 16 years sober, and I still have to pay the price on occasion in, in small ways, but they're the further out you get, the more sort of painful they can be because you've proven yourself, right? You, at this point in your life, have proven that you can be a productive member of this world. And having to constantly pay the price for an indefinite amount of time in job interviews and people interviews, people who you might potentially want to be friends with or have relationships with that run a background check and see these terrible things on your record and don't bother to look and see that it was X many years ago. and. So it's, I, think it's, I think it's important for people who are unaware to know that we don't ever stop paying the price or that we may never, but it's, it's long after society wants you to believe that it is. Absolutely, and very well said. Well, yeah, I just I appreciate you a lot, Daryl. Thank you so much for being on the show. I appreciate you inviting me. It's, um, I've never had the opportunity to talk about this. I usually just keep it all to myself. So thanks a lot. Thanks.